Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Helping Hands of Our Community, addressing the Social Determinants of Health podcast, where we highlight the incredible work of individuals, agencies, and organizations who are committed to creating healthy and thriving communities through their community-engaged work. Thank you for taking time and joining us today. Judge Curitan is a district court judge in Mecklenburg County. He was first elected in November 2010 and then appointed by Governor Roy Cooper in February 2019. He is state certified in juvenile court matters, including abuse, neglect, dependency, and delinquency cases. He has handled every matter in district court, including civil, criminal, child support, family, and domestic violence cases. Presently, he presides over the DWI STEP Court Recovery Program and has presided over the Youth District Court, Mental Wellness, and Superior Court programs as well. Prior to joining the bench, he worked for the Mecklenburg County Public Defender's Office and for Powers McCartan, formerly known as Bush and Powers, a local law firm. Outside of his regular duties in court, Judge Curitan is extremely active in the community. He regularly speaks to citizens on topics relevant to the justice system and participates with organizations and committees connected to the justice system. Currently, he serves on the North Carolina Governor's Crime Commission Children's Justice Act Subcommittee and is an executive committee member of Race Matters for Juvenile Justice. In 2017, he graduated from the Community Building Initiative Leadership Development Institute as part of a group representing Race Matters for Juvenile Justice. In 2012, Judge Curitan graduated from the second class of CBI's Leaders Under 40 program. In 2009, Judge Curitan graduated from the Mecklenburg County Bar, Bar Leadership Institute. He is a member of the Beta New Lambda chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity, Inc. and St. Paul Baptist Church. A native Charlottean, Judge Curitan is a graduate of Garinger Senior High School, Winston-Salem State University, and The Howard University School of Law. Judge Curitan has been married for 15 years to Deanna Curitan, who is the 2017 and 18 CMS Teacher of the Year, props, props to that, and they have one seven-year-old daughter, Dia. That, that's a lot. Judge Curitan has done a whole lot. And you know what? Like most of our guests, if not all of our guests, we can hear a book about each one of y'all. So I'm going to move on to Dr. McCarter. Dr. Susan McCarter is an associate professor of social work at UNC Charlotte. Dr. McCarter's career began as a juvenile probation officer, inner city mental health counselor, and policy analyst and advocate in Virginia, where she earned her MSW clinical and her PhD, social policy and social work. For over 20 years, she has served as a disproportionate minority contact scholar and a forensic practitioner. Nationally, Dr. McCarter serves on the board of the National Organization of Forensic Social Work and chairs the Society of Social Work and Research's Criminal and Juvenile Justice Interest Group. Regionally, she co-chairs the NC Red Racial and Ethnic Disparities Subcommittee and the Charlotte Racial Justice Consortium, a collaborative of UNC Charlotte, Johnson C. Smith, and Queens University, dedicated to truth, racial healing, and transformation. And she's also on the leadership team for Race Matters for Juvenile Justice. Dr. McCarter currently leads the UNC Charlotte Racial Equity Skill Building Caucus and multiple funded research studies examining the school-to-prison pipeline, juvenile diversion, and racial equity. I could go on and on and on about our two guests in here. I am so excited that they're present with us, and welcome again. I really am thankful that you guys are here. Our listeners are going to be filled with rich information, not only about the work that you guys are doing, but why you do it and why it's important for them to know about it. So again, welcome, 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 Judge Curitan and Dr. McCarter. You know, oftentimes when when Judge Curitan and I represent Race Matters for Juvenile Justice, we start with, 
you know, what called you to this work? And for me, it was being an adolescent mental health therapist. I used to work with, and I have air quotes for you guys in the audience who can't see my air quotes, children who were identified as at risk. These are all adolescents. I have three adolescents that live in my house with me. And I truthfully have never met an adolescent that I didn't think was at risk of something. So while I'm working with these young people, the courts in Virginia were set up the same way that they are in North Carolina. And that is there's a dependency side and a delinquency side. The delinquency side is for youth who have committed either criminal or status offenses. And then the dependency side is for children who have been involved with foster care or the child welfare system. So there were days when I was up at the courthouse with a client running from one side of the courthouse to the other side because many of my clients were involved in both facets of the system. Thinking back to uh, those days when I was, you know, as they say around here, knee high to a grasshopper, I was really struck you know, kicked in the gut when I looked around the courthouse and realized that I looked like most of the judges, most of the law enforcement officers, most of the attorneys, and yet the clients that I represented didn't look like me and all looked like one another. Um, And it was that visceral reaction. It was that kick in the gut that fueled my passion and angered me when I examined the racial and ethnic disparities that were then and continue to be perpetuated through our juvenile justice system. Thanks so much for sharing that. It's it's important for our listeners to know how passionate um, both Judge Curriton and Dr. McCarter are about the work that they do. And it really it really not only shows through your words right now, but through your work. And we're going to dive into that a little bit later. So I appreciate you sharing that. Well, I would say similarly, I think anybody who comes to this work, they have some experience that catapults them in a direction where they feel compelled to really dive really deeply into the subject matters that we're dealing with. Prior to being a district court judge, I was an assistant public defender, and I was representing individuals mostly that did look like me who were coming back and forth into the system. And for whatever reason, the the root causes of their being brought into the system were not actually being addressed. And I thought being on a bench would allow me a little more authority to be able to dictate some things, hopefully, that could, could change that for folks. And maybe if they saw me on the bench, that it would shift something mentally and emotionally inside of them that hopefully would help them avoid coming into the system. And also being from the area, um, have, have a strong love for the community here that, um, you know, I just wanted to see people do well. And sadly, I was seeing a bunch of folks that um, I went to school with or I grew up with. And uh, thankfully, I got an opportunity to work in the juvenile justice system a year after I became a judge. And uh, I felt like that was the most effective way for me to address some of those issues that we were seeing because the adults that have these problems were once kids with similar issues. And um, that's how I met Dr. McCarter through Race Matters for Juvenile Justice. And although it was one of my colleagues who said, hey, you need to come and join us and and do this kind of work, it it wasn't a a hard sell because I, I knew that what Race Matters for Juvenile Justice or RMJJ was doing, it was unlike anything else I'd ever seen, especially in this particular area. So it, it is a it is a labor of love, I think, for everybody involved in our own respective rights, but we love doing it. I think anytime Dr. McCarter is out there representing her passion, it's not difficult to say, I need to be on board with that. Um, she is definitely uh, somebody is committed to the community and 
And for that, I am grateful. She's not only a colleague, but just somebody who's a champion. And, and so are you, Judge Curitan. I remember one of the first times we met was back in my days at Thompson Child and Family Focus when we started having the, the youth hearings um, for children who, at that time, I was working at a psychiatric residential treatment facility. And uh, yourself, uh, Judge Miller, Judge Trost, we all got to know each other in that sense. And we could really tell the dedication that y'all had for the rights of children. And I really appreciate that that work continues to happen in your in your life, in both of y'all's lives. So you guys mentioned Race Matters for Juvenile Justice. Um, would love for our listeners who aren't aware of what RMJJ means, what it stands for, who y'all are, if y'all can talk a little bit about that. We're an organization that is court-driven. So there were judges, juvenile probation officers, DAs, defense attorneys, et cetera, that came together in 2010 to have discussions about what they were seeing in court. Why were there so many black and brown children coming into court? And why was it so disproportionate to the population here in, in Mecklenburg County, which is essentially the disproportionate population of, across the country? And those early meetings developed into what we now know as RMJJ. And it is still court-driven. All of our partners have some direct contact with the court system in some form or fashion. And somebody like Dr. McCarter, there's not a lot of folks like her and so her being a part of it was to, I, I believe initially, was to help illuminate the data that some of us were unaware of, because I wasn't part of that original group. But I know that we could anecdotally say what it looked like, but there was hard data that existed that could explain what we were seeing. And so now we're doing a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, we, we can go into that in, in greater detail, but um, it, it is a tremendous organization. And again, it started, much like Judge Curitan described, in order to raise awareness about the disparities and disproportionality of children of color in the juvenile justice system, hence the name Race Matters for Juvenile Justice. In addition, in January of 2010, when we crafted that mission and vision statement, we really envisioned a, a Charlotte-Mecklenburg community whose outcomes in juvenile court couldn't be predicted by race and ethnicity. And so they bring me on to work in that space. I was thrilled to meet Elisa Chingari, who serves as our clerk of superior court. And at that time, Judge Lou Trosh, who was in juvenile court, really leading this effort in our community and being able to share their stories and match those stories with some fun facts. So, for example, I'll, I'll give you a fun fact to get us going here. In 2000, in the state of North Carolina, there were 892 youth who were committed to youth development centers. Now, youth development centers are kitty prisons for anybody who doesn't know what a YDC is. So you had 892 children. And remember, this was in 2000, long before Raise the Age was in effect. Raise the Age was passed December 1, 2019. Well, it was passed before then, but it was implemented in December of last year, raising North Carolina's age of majority to 18. So we moved 16 and 17-year-olds into the juvenile system. We were the last state of all 50 to raise our age to 18. But so in 2000, there were 892 young people in youth development centers. Of those 892, 33% identified as white, 4% 
identified as multiracial, and 61% identified as African-American. Fast forward to 2018, we have 192 young people in youth development centers. So if you end the story there, people are cheering in the streets. Well, Judge Curitan and I are cheering in the streets, and Professor Sukuple is there with us, because that's a real win for kids in North Carolina. The rest of the story, however, is a little bit more telling, and that is of those 192 children in 2018 who were in YDCs, 18% identify as white, 2% identify as multiracial, 4% identify as Latinx, and 74% identify as African American. So Although we have drastically reduced the number of children that we incarcerate across the state of North Carolina, the disparities for race and ethnic groups are actually becoming bigger or are increasing despite the fewer kids that we're locking up. Wow. So that's something that I feel like listeners need to be aware of. Although the numbers decrease, so you're looking at, at, at the volume volume's gone down, which in this case, we do applaud, like you mentioned, hey, the volume's gone down. However, the composition of the volume has actually increased in different numbers. And the representation is something that we need to be concerned about. We need to be champions of what can we do to shift the narrative in our communities where we don't see disparities like this. And I know we're going to talk a little bit later here about the school to prison pipeline. And within that, we can talk about the levels of discipline that occurs in the school systems, the numbers of suspensions that are seen, you know, this, it's disproportionate there. And again, it's, it's important to recognize that numbers sometimes may look like it's something positive and good, but numbers can also be very deceiving at times. Yes, I certainly agree. Because I think for those of us, you included, when you were at that facility, it doesn't feel like we're winning, um, especially when it's a constant and you're seeing the same people over and over and they're having some very large issues that they're having to deal with. And we're trying to figure out how did it start? Because we can put a Band-Aid on it. We could put something in place maybe that can help shift the narrative for them. Um, and, and we hope that that will be able to sustain them past that interaction that we have, but their issues are so deep-rooted that it's going to take some real addressing the the, the roots to, to make that happen. And so that's part of what RMJJ is doing through our race equity workshops by bringing policymakers in or people who are in decision-making roles, and these decisions are impacting the people in the community that we're seeing. We are trying to educate them and have dialogue whereby they can better understand how we found ourselves in this place in the, in the first place. Because I, I think the conversation usually is about individual responsibility, and that's part of it. Um, we, we do understand that. But even the folks who are experiencing the trauma and the issues that we're seeing, they are unaware of the education. And so we're trying to to attack it from all sides. We're doing it in the courtroom. We're doing it in terms of the research, and we're doing it in terms of hopefully implementing policies from various agencies, including the governmental agencies, that we hope can shift that narrative for them. How involved are elected officials with RMJJ and the race equity workshops that you mentioned? Uh, what's the level of involvement with elected officials? Because I would think that's something that as constituents, we would want our elected officials to be aware of because in essence, they're the ones that are either creating policies, shifting policies, looking at policies. So what's their level of engagement? Well, I would say at the local level, everyone is at least aware 
of RMJJ. And uh, a good number of them have gone through our race safety workshop. And, and the goal is to make sure every elected official goes through the workshop. And, and I think it has helped shift the way, for instance, the school board has seen certain things, made certain decisions, whether that's changing where kids go to school, the zoning, how discipline is, is implemented. There are a number of things that I think happened in those early discussions with RMJJ that helped shift the policy from our government officials. But I, I don't believe every single person has gone through yet. No, I think you're right. Um, last Thursday night, uh, Judge Curitan, Judge Best, and Judge Little presented through RMJJ's Speakers Bureau on the topic of implicit bias. And I bet we had 10 elected officials present for that dialogue around implicit bias. And I think it's important to shine the light on how people, Roger, to your point, how people are engaged in this work in various ways. In addition, I would highlight the partners of RMJJ because RMJJ is really focused on institutional organizing for practice change. We're able to bring together leadership from the school board, from CMPD, from UNC Charlotte, from Guardian Ad Litem. Of course, as Judge Curtin mentioned, the judiciary the trial court administrator's office, district attorney, public defender, etc. But then you actually, in a monthly meeting, have leaders from these organizations that had really been previously siloed doing their work focused on their piece of the puzzle. By bringing them all together, you really get a more holistic conversation where we can affect change. Let's try this over here. Let's try this over here. Let's try this over here. Let's collect some data and see if we're actually able to move the dial. Thank you for that, because I feel like it's important, again, for listeners to sort of know the foundation and the structure of race matters for juvenile justice and the whys, right? And I'm going to ask you a question about implicit bias here in a second. But before I do so, I wanted to ask, what's the youth involvement with RMJJ? Because in my mind, I'm thinking juvenile is a word that's included in RMJJ. And I know a lot of that is for us, the big folks, the adults to sort of start having this this awareness. But are youth also included in some of these conversations or at least maybe at the high school level, having some kind of involvement where they're aware as well? Well, I would say that we are actively trying to expand our youth engagement. We are conducting youth race equity workshops uh, and have been doing that, I believe, for the past few years. So there's an active attempt to try to expand that and then try to see where we can maybe engage kids and maybe at the school level outside of just our race equity workshops. Because, I mean, we see a number of kids at our presentations and there's also a possibility of adding one or two youth on our leadership team so where we can get that feedback. Because, um, you know, for instance, Dr. McCarter and I are part of a team that is participating with the Government Alliance with Race and Equity. And one of the things that we've had a lot of discussion about is how do we engage the community in the strategic strategies that we're developing to address these issues. And we know that the community and our target audience are the youth that we're trying to affect change for. So we all realize that that's something we're going to have to add to, to make sure that we're adequately addressing. That's something that that we see, too, when we are in the community, especially for our school-to-prison pipeline presentations. Judge Little always ensures that we have a space in a school, in a CMS school, highlighting our partnership with the school, highlighting our partnership with CMPD. But it always is a topic that draws youth out to come to those presentations. So we would love to, to increase their engagement. 
for our listeners out there, whether you're a youth or a, or a parent or a caregiver of, of a youth, I feel like it's really crucial for you to not only be listening to this, but then later when I provide information about how to contact Dr. McCarter or Judge Curitan or matters related to race matters for juvenile justice, that you reach out because we are leaders, right? And we have leaders, but our youth there are leaders and we, we need to provide access for information so they can be aware and so they can make decisions that are going to impact everybody else who's coming along. So thank you so much. Dr. McCarty, you mentioned implicit bias and I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that and, and Judge Kirtan chime in as well. But we in this room, we're aware, we know, right? But some of our listeners might not be aware of or might not have ever heard of implicit bias. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure, sure. So implicit bias is is a strategy that our brain uses that basically keeps us alive. So we process information that comes in through our eyes. That information is triaged through two little almond-shaped organs in our brain called amygdala, or two of them, amygdalae. And so when you see something, a shark, a bear, you can kind of decide, am I going to freeze, fight, flee, roll over, play dead, you know, what's what's my strategy? And that, that strategy is really fast in order to keep you alive. What most people don't understand is the majority of your brain decision-making happens really fast. It doesn't happen really slowly. Your slow-thinking brain is your conscious brain, and that's much more taxing and much slower. The definition difference between implicit bias and explicit bias, explicit bias is bias that you're aware of, you know you have bias, and you can make the decision to tell that off-color joke at a cocktail party or not to tell that joke because you know that it's not appropriate. Implicit bias is a little trickier because you're unaware of it. Your brain is not aware of some of the messaging that you've gotten as a young person, some messaging that you get through the media, messaging that you get from your friend groups, your social media, etc. So one of the, the kind of learning curves that we at Race Matters for Juvenile Justice try to help with is that education around implicit and explicit bias. The only way that we can move implicit bias into your conscious brain is to make you aware of it. So if you've never been to implicit.harvard.edu, you can go on, register as a guest, take an implicit association test, and figure out where some of those biases are. Again, everyone has biases, We're all, in fact, biased, and it's just helping us short-circuit some of those mental shortcuts to make sure that we do our work more effectively and objectively. Judge Kiriton? Yeah, when I was uh, during a presentation, I told the group that I had just taken the test and had directed me through the age bias portion. And uh, apparently I was biased towards younger people. So I, my decision-making in a favorable way was skewed towards younger people. Who knew? Especially, I try to be so deferential to uh, folks who may be more experienced than me, have more wisdom, whether it's age or actual professional experience. And uh, so to see that, I was trying to figure out, okay, what was it about it? But now that I know, it, I'm conscious of it a little more. And when I make decisions, I try to make sure at least that I have assessed that bias up front and then make my decision that hopefully will be equitable in the end. One of the presentations that we have coming up is Implicit Bias 2, which actually shows some strategies for de-biasing 
uh, techniques. One of the initiatives from the judiciary was judicial bench cards. Judge Kirtan, mm-hmm. would you talk about what the mm-hmm. what the bench cards do and how they work? So the, the bench cards give us essentially guideposts and, and outlines to help us be able to take the necessary steps to recognize our biases in play. And then um, once we've gone through that checklist, and at least at that point, we know what's going on and then can put in a ruling that is, again, equitable. Because if we're operating in the subconscious, trying to move through our dockets very quickly and we haven't taken those necessary steps, then we could very well overlook what is going on in, in our subconscious and make a decision in haste that will not be favorable and fair. So um, it's, it's something to have in written form. And I, and I can be bad about always going through a checklist because I kind of I'm moving in real time, but it helps us slow down and, and make those decisions. I guess you're looking at it from how can I be able to provide something that's not only equal, but equitable. You're looking at like you're factoring in a lot at one time and it's coming at you a million miles a minute and then trying to do something that's in the end going to be beneficial to all parties involved. It's got to be tough. It it does. You know, there's an image that has these three kids on boxes looking over a fence that I think a lot of people are aware of, but also could applied in this way, I could make every single person who I, that I find guilty pay court costs and pay a $100 fine and pay attorney's fees and do the exact same thing for every single person. You could say that's equal, but it may not be equ- equitable because one person may have just paid an attorney 10 grand to represent them and they have that money available to them where the next person literally is homeless and is living in a tent in the woods and they have shown up to court to try to answer up for shoplifting when they're just really trying to steal to survive. That's not equitable to require them to pay $180 in court costs. They barely have two nickels to rub together. So that's that's an example I, I like to try to use. Well, I appreciate that. And, and I really appreciate the fact that you have led into a lot of fruitful discussion for our listeners to just marinate on, you know, um, the experiences that led you to the work that you're doing, to, that led you to your research. You know, our podcast is about addressing social determinants of health. And so, you know, definitely the research that you guys are doing, the work that you're doing through RMJJ, um, is having an impact not only on juveniles, but families in the community at large, elected officials, everybody. I don't feel like this is something that needs to be only for a certain pocket of individuals, only for researchers, only for um, folks in the court system. This is a community effort here. And that's what we hope our listeners are able to get out of this is that, you know, for our podcast, our guests are so, their grace is offering us their time, but we really want to highlight what's going on because unless you're impacted by something, you don't know. Right. And so this isn't something that folks only need to know if they're impacted by it. This needs to be something everybody knows, whether you're impacted or not, because you could we could all do something about this. So thank you so much for sharing all this. Dr. McCarter, you I know a lot of your work is not only you're embedded in a lot of things. Dr. McCarter, I don't know how if you sleep. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, you know, one of your passions, aside from race matters for juvenile justice, um, you're involved in dismantling racism. You're involved in doing research regarding the school to prison pipeline. Could you talk a little bit about some of that work, some of that research? Sure. So the school to prison pipeline is the pathway between education system and the the judicial system, whether it's juvenile justice or adult justice, depending on how old you are, what state you live in. And so this idea 
um, and we talked a little bit about silos, breaking down those silos earlier, the school-to-prison pipeline is one of the first mechanisms that we see nationally that has these two systems a requirement that they talk to one another, and it's beginning to break down those silos. We used to um, envision education as a protective factor. So when I study adolescent risk and resiliency, education was always one of those components that kept you safer or made you more successful or increased your outcomes, health disparities, et cetera. And we've seen over time with zero tolerance policies and exclusionary discipline, an increase in the the role of uh, school resource officers, um, the criminalization of what used to be typical school misbehavior. When Donnie and I were in school together, um, you know, you got sent to the assistant principal's office. You weren't given a citation by an officer that required you to go to juvenile court. So some things have shifted, and it's really having those conversations to get us back to keeping kids out of juvenile court whenever possible. The Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act of 1974 was reauthorized in December of 2018. As part of that reauthorization, the requirement for the formation of school justice partnerships was written into that policy. Mecklenburg County is is one of the leaders in North Carolina informing a school justice partnership and really beginning to, you know, classify focus acts and classify um, appropriate responses in schools. Judge Carrington? Yeah, I was uh, I was going back. I actually looked it up last night and I was like, I knew that we were one of the leaders, but we were apparently the second county and it was just a month later after New Hanover County. And so, you know, Thanks to you know Dr. McCarter and 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 others like Judge uh, Elizabeth Trosh and Judge McCord Mitchell, we were able to have that dialogue across the community agencies and, and players very early before anybody else was really talking about it. And um, because we recognized we were having kids being suspended, at, it felt like astronomical rates, but they were astronomical rates for discretionary issues. When you when you say discretionary, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm wondering if our if our listeners know what that means. So yeah. in the state of North Carolina, there are um, 13 mandatorily reported offenses, which means Roger, if you show up at uh, Garinger with a knife, that's a mandatorily reported offense. Your principal has to call Raleigh and say, Roger came to school with a knife today. What we find is the exact same proportion at the national level that we find in North Carolina, and that is that those mandatorily reported offenses are about 3% of all of the school-based offenses. So 3% at the national level and 3% in North Carolina. Well, that leads a whopping 97%, which are discretionary offenses. That's when somebody's making a decision about whether or not to call this an affray, to call it an assault, to call it, you know, kids poking each other with a pencil, whatever happens as the level of discretion increases, the level of racial and ethnic disparities also increase. When when Dr. McCarter talked about the things that we used to do that would just have you sent to assistant principal's office or principal's office, depending on the school, (laughs) you know, it would be for maybe talking back to the teacher 
or leaving class unexpectedly. Things, unfortunately, I did in Goofing high school. off like I did, right. probably. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and all kids, most, I, I can't generalize, but I would say most kids have done that at some point during their careers as students. So when did it get to the point where we were now being kicked out of school? And so once we started seeing that not only a lot of students were being either kicked out of school or sent to uh, the school resource officer and citations were being filed, et cetera. Uh, we also started noticing that a large number of them were black and brown kids. And so that's also part of the discussion because that is now creating the pipeline of people having a contact with the criminal justice system that they wouldn't normally wouldn't normally have. I'm, you know, some kids are already inundated with contact with law enforcement just because of where they live. And so, as Dr. McCarter indicated, in the past, we thought of going to school as being a safe space. You know, that's the one time that they don't have to deal with all of the crime and trauma and all the other things that they're, they're dealing with. But now, if they're going to school, and maybe they are responding in a way based off all the trauma and experiences they've been having, instead of having those conversations with them to really address what's going on, they're just saying you got to go. And so now we're increasing the expectancy of them having a lifetime of interaction with the criminal justice system. And we're trying to break that. So what are what are some of the things, what are some of the ways that y'all are, are researching or being engaged in this community that will hopefully break this, that will send it not from the school to prison pipeline, but from the school to success pipeline? Well, so the, the school justice partnerships are certainly um, a highlight. We're raising awareness about the phenomenon. So I talked a little bit about federal policy in the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act. You also had uh, No Child Left Behind enforced. When No Child Left Behind was implemented, you saw a ripple effect for the preparation and education of teachers. So here at UNC Charlotte in our College of Education, mandated by the federal government, you had more and more classes designed to teach content and fewer and fewer classes around trauma, around mental health, around positive discipline practices um, for teachers. So we're, we're, in effect, not preparing our teachers in the same way that we used to. And then we're sending them into classrooms which have a higher proportion of black and brown children and students in their class. They don't have the mechanisms to appropriately manage. It's, it's, you know, there's more and more kids who have more and more complex issues. And and then you've got an armed school resource officer that's down the hall. Now that's an option for you. And all under the idea that placing school resource officers in schools makes them safer when we don't have any evidence. There's no national evidence to suggest in an active shooter situation in some of these other parents' worst nightmare scenarios that a school resource officer is in effect going to keep kids safe. There is uh, research out of the, the Chicago Public School Consortium that suggests that the way that you keep kids safe and faculty safe is to improve your school climate. So those are some of the things that we're doing locally to try and disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline. And you, you had mentioned complex trauma, and, and you know, I think it's something that we still need to have a conversation about for folks to be aware of, like, what is complex trauma? Um, I think folks may think it has to be something really big when really complex trauma could be, I'm homeless, so I don't have a place to sleep. I'm a kid, right? Say I'm seven, I'm 12, I'm 18, so I don't know where I'm going to sleep next, which means... I don't know if I'm going to eat, which means 
do you see where I'm going? It's like all these, like just the smaller stuff. I can't even walk down my neighborhood because, you know, something might happen to me. So there's all these complex traumas, complex issues that are out there that, that I feel like maybe we don't think a lot about. We think of, we may think of complex trauma. It has to be something really, one really big thing when it just could be a variety of smaller things that end up creeping up. And I think that's typically what we see. And I think the problem we, we tend to find is the the way people respond to the symptoms that show as a result of the trauma. Maybe they have, have had a similar experience and they say, well, I was able to make it out. Why can't you? Or I was able to handle it. Why can't you? Or you just need to be tough or you just need to do this. And we have to really understand that everybody doesn't respond to the to their experiences the exact same way. So having uh, that that understanding, I think, is is a core beginning ground for for us, and, and just trying to figure out, you know, how we can better respond respond to kids who are having these these symptoms of trauma. Right, it's like aspirin. Some folks can take aspirin and it works, and other folks have are, might be allergic to aspirin, or they just respond differently to aspirin. And so, one thing that is supposed to help ends up not helping other people. So, and I think we have to look at it at the individual level or, you know, Roger, as you would say, right at the micro level, we also have to look at these complex problems and issues at the meso level and at the macro level. So, you know, Race Matters for Juvenile Justice is certainly going to have conversations about positive discipline and trauma-focused care, trauma-informed care. In addition, we're looking at poli- at putting policy in place. We're looking at those conversations across systems, which will result in addressing some of these underlying uh, groundwater type issues like structural racism. This is so much information. It's not only rich, but it, it's it's meaningful. And we talked about advocacy. We talked about your work in the justice system as a judge, as a researcher, as advocates. We talked about working in the community, talked about micro, mezzo, and macro levels. I mean, this is all great. If you could give our listeners some advice, if folks are out there who are interested in pursuing the work that y'all are doing, whether it's, it's as a researcher, whether it's as a judge, or whether it's in, in whatever capacity, what advice would you have for them in, in regards to working in the judicial system, advocacy work with community activism and research? Yeah, I've thought a lot about that question. I think if anybody wants to do work in any capacity that touches our system, they one need to understand that if they have big dreams and big goals about a wholesale shift or change, they have to one be patient. Um, <laughs> Come on, Judge Kerry, we want it now. Yeah, right? yeah. It's fast food society. Yeah, and I've struggled with that quite often. I think all of us have. And any effort that we can give is an effort worth giving because what we've seen, I think, as an organization is that it's been organic from its inception. And those little things that they were doing at the very beginning have added up into a 10-year legacy that is only going to grow. And although we may not be able to see the end result, we are definitely working towards that. So whatever your role may be, it will have an impact. And especially if you are able to give the positive energy and work that we believe we have. Madam Clerk, Chingari refers to it as cathedral building. So we may not be around to see the cathedral, but Donald and I are out there laying bricks when right. we can <laughs> and trying to build, build it up. 
you know, there's some specific strategies that folks can take. Go to the Race Matters for Juvenile Justice website, though it's under construction right now, so don't judge. It's www.rmjj.org. There you'll find information about the Racial Equity Workshops. Uh, it's a two-day life-changing experience. Roger, you've attended mm-hmm. that that workshop. For many folks in our community, it changes the way they do their work, the way they think about their professional life as well as their personal life. If you're connected to one of the institutions that we mentioned, if, if you contact, if you have intersection with the school system or the criminal justice system or law enforcement, find out what they're doing in partnership with RMJJ. Plug in that way. RMJJ has six different subcommittees And each one of those is a volunteer base. And so there are ways to plug in. Once you attend that that two-day workshop, that's kind of the entry point. But once you do that, there's certainly ways to serve on subcommittees and roll your sleeves up and help dismantle racism and promote racial equity in our community. With dismantling racism, can you just touch briefly on um, the concept, the two-day workshop, and then sort of the the follow-up? Well, the the concept, as I believe in it and the way I felt it in going through it, it is one, an introduction to the history of structural racism. And, you know, Dr. McCarter being a a data person is essentially the data that we all may have thought existed. And I think even for black folks, it's very illuminating. So being introduced to that, that history and then having the discussions about how we came to where we are now. You know, that's a very general perception of of what it was, but it helped put everything in context about how we got to where we are and then what can we do now that we have this knowledge. Thank you so much for that, Judge Curitan. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So I know that y'all are embedded in your work. Again, I think I alluded to earlier, I have no idea if Dr. McCarter sleeps, but she might and not much, but I know she might. And so tell our listeners something that you enjoy doing that has nothing to do with with your work. That's nothing connected to what what you do for a living. Well, I love to cook. I love to eat first. And because I love to eat, I love to cook. And so recently, I won't tell you how recently, but recently for my 50th birthday, I published a cookbook and it was my gift to my friends and all the people who email me to ask for this recipe or that recipe. And then we, we kind of decided to take all the the proceeds of that cookbook and 100% of what was paid for the cookbook was donated to Hope Haven, which is a partner of RMJJ's serving women and children and families who are in active recovery. And they've been a great partner of ours. And Chef Pete Stack is amazing. So that was kind of a fun win-win for, for them as well. What's what's the name? What's the what's the name of the cook? It's called Cooking to Get Lucky. All right, now, folks, I will say that Dr. McCarter makes a mean pimento cheese spread dip, whatever people want to call it. I just call it yumminess. So. <laughs> The recipe's in the cookbook. And she sometimes enlightens me with a, a little bit of it, and that, that kind of makes my yeah. that makes my week, my month, yeah. my year. It is good. <laughs> I don't know if you've, if you've had I the have. honor of it. You have? have? Yes. Wow. So yeah. we're, that, we're in good spaces when yeah, Dr. McCarter makes that pimento absolutely. cheese uh, spread. So it's dip. a very southern dish. It is. <laughs> a very southern dish. How about yourself, Judge Curitan? Oh, man. What do I like to do in my spare time? Well, I have become more of a DIY creative person. I I don't know how to really put it in context. 
So it started because my wife, who did not grow up with a, a lot of money, learned how to do a lot of things on her own. So oddly enough, I had never really painted in interior houses, put up wallpaper, all of those things. And our first house, that's what we started to do. So it then transitioned into putting in garbage disposals, doing uh, oh, wow. replacing sinks. You know, so we have decided to start building some other things. So we had some leftover chain rail molding from the the building of our current home and us being relatively cheap, didn't want to <laughs> pay for them to install it. And so it sat for a couple of years. So in this period, when I um, after the election in 18 and when I was appointed by the governor, I did my dining room hallways and I built a cabinet for a sink and installed a new sink and changed plumbing, all of those other things. So it's a very cathartic thing to to do is, you know, talk about mental wellness. It, it really helped restore me during that, that transitional period. And uh, it's something I love to do. I have taken a break because it was, a, it was, I mean, I was replacing ceiling fans, putting in new interior lights, all of this stuff. But uh, I, I love to do that. So yeah. you could have your own show on HGTV Yeah, then. right. I, I would love to. I would love to. I, I, I said in a former life, so I must have been a carpenter. But if, if that happens, I, look, I, I may just have to Make it a job. Yeah, I might, you know, I might have you come over to my, I got some projects that I'm gotcha. installing, <laughs> you know. My wife might appreciate that I get it get, get it going. I might get a motivation from you. So I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, other thing real quick, and I, and I know our listeners, they know I love to talk about sports. And so there's not an episode that goes by that. I try not to throw in a sports thing in here. So, you know, Judge Curitan and I share, um, share a connection through our love for Duke basketball. I got on my Duke hat right now, even though I'm at UNCC, but I got to show love to the Duke Blue Devils, who just recently won a big game, won a big game at at Chapel Hill against the evil Tar Heels. Uh, so I'm kidding for all our Tar Heel listeners. But uh, what do you think about that game, Judge Curitan? Oddly enough, I, I think in my older age, I have not been able to watch many Duke Carolina oh, games. Man. And so I actually started watching in the second half and watched it till four minutes left. And I went upstairs saying, I can't watch anymore. Unbeknownst to us. <laughs> oh, Judge Carrington, you missed it. We found we, we found out that it was in overtime. I cut it on, and it was 10 seconds left. And it was some Imagine, of the great 10 I seconds mean, of yep, college right. basketball history. It's, so Honestly, it's Duke yeah, Carolina. It I mean, is. Upset. It is. It's the greatest, greatest sports rivalry, I think. I agree. Ever. Dr. McCarter, I would I'd be remiss if I didn't mention soccer as well. I know uh, you have some soccer blood in your family. What do you think about the women's national team coming up here? Uh, we got the Olympics coming up, right? I think they recently played. They played China or Japan. Well, the U.S. women's national team played last night against Canada. Um, and won the tournament last night, three nothing. And that catapulted them into a spot in the Olympics, I think. I can't, I can't remember. But soccer is uh, soccer and basketball, college basketball, are two of my favorite sports here. And I have two fans, fanatics. I know your daughter played soccer, right? She did. She did. Emory University. Yeah, and I remember watching the video of her awesome goal and your <laughs> very loud yays and screams <laughs> from the background. So, uh, so I appreciate you taking time to tell us a little bit about what y'all do when you're not doing the incredible work in the community. So, as we wrap up here, for folks who would like to get in touch with you or to know a little bit more, I know Dr. McCarter, you already mentioned Race Matters for Juvenile Justice website. Um, but what's what's the best way that our listeners can reach out to y'all? Email's the best way to get me. It's just my email address is S for Susan and then McCarter at uncc.edu. And I can be reached at donald.r.curitan at nccourts.org. 
So that's donald.r.curitan at nccourts.org. Judge Curitan, Dr. McCarter, we want to thank you again for your time and commitment to creating healthy and thriving communities through your work. I appreciate your dedication and your your commitment again. And and I appreciate your friendship and definitely appreciate the work that you're doing. It's not easy, but I know that um, you guys have no fear. You have no fear of, of what's out there and you definitely have no fear of what other people are going to say about it because you want other people to know why you're doing this and why they should be involved, why we should all be involved. So thank you again for spending time with us. We we hope the best for y'all and perhaps we need to, guy, we need to have you guys come back here again in the future. So thanks again for your time. Sounds good. Thank thanks you. For, thanks for having us. So to access this episode along with notes and information about Judge Curitan and Dr. McCarter and information about their work and research, navigate to thehelpinghandspodcast.com. And once again, we'd like to give a special shout out and thanks to UNC Charlotte for supporting us by providing the studio and resources to record our podcast episodes. We'd also like to give a shout out to Alex and Adam in here in the studio making us sound good. Thank you guys so much. And thank you to our listeners for your curiosity and willingness to learn something new today. Until next time, remember, strong always, always strong.